G'day, welcome to Partakers. This is a series of studies called Luke Looks Back, based in the Gospel of Luke, and is presented to us by Roger Kirby. Over to you, Roger. This is study 18, Luke chapter 13, verse 10, to chapter 14, verse 35. We call it the Great Reversals. Reversal seems to be the theme of this section. Amongst the things reversed are the physical state of a woman, the importance of big things and little things, the status of important and unimportant people, the relative importance of the Sabbath and of healing, and the sort of people invited to the great feast in the kingdom of God. We start off by reading chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days to work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. The first question. In these verses, how do the Lord and Luke heighten the contrast between the woman before and after her healing. By emphasising the bent and the straight, we may well be meant to see these as metaphors for sin and righteousness. We read chapter 13, verses 18 to 21. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Question 2. Those two small parables about the mustard seed and the yeast say something obvious about size. What else do they say? Growth is a major factor in both little parables, and the fact that birds could perch in the tree suggests there will be unclean, non-Jewish people 
in the kingdom. What sort of tree Jesus had in mind is not clear. Mustard seeds do not normally grow into a tree. Was Jesus, with his great sense of humour, deliberately suggesting that the impossible would happen? Yeast too is unclean, with the same suggestion. We're going to read now chapter 13, verses 22 to 35. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter but will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isaiah chapters 25 and 60 provide much of the background for the first story there. On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. And then again he says, Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. Then will all your peoples be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly.
The Jews of Jesus' day were inclined to forget the bit about all nations and think they were the only privileged people who would see the kingdom. Jesus is saying that the situation will be much reversed if they are not careful, as they were not. We read chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, If one of you had a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Question 3. Why does Jesus not say something like, If you come back tomorrow, I can give you proper attention and not offend anybody, instead of what he did say, which was to ask, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And when they remained silent, he went ahead and healed him. Jesus is using the situation as a teaching opportunity. He is saying that the human situation, demanding the healing of the man, is more important than, than the religious duty of keeping the Sabbath. At first glance, the next few verses about picking the place of honour at the table read more like advice than a parable. There are two hints that it is a parable. The word translated honoured near the end of verse 10 where it says when you are invited take the lowest place so that when your host comes he will say to you friend move up to a better place then you will be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. 
It's the same word as the one usually used for grace. So it is literally, get grace. And the saying in verse 11, which is, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, is very like the previous one about the last will be first, and the first being last, which refers to the kingdom. Question 4. Necessarily, some are chief executive officers of big firms, bishops in charge of churches, or head teachers in schools, and so on. How does this teaching about taking the lower place at the table apply to them? They must be careful not to exalt themselves. If others exalt them, that is all right. Once again, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of motive in all that we do. Other people cannot see our motives, but we know what they are, if we think about them, and the Lord knows anyway. Jesus breaks the accepted social conventions of good behavior several times in these verses. He heals a man on the Sabbath. He criticizes the way people choose places at the table. And then he tells his listeners to invite all sorts of people to their meals. That's not what people expected to do. So, question five. Why does Jesus do and say things that so offend people? Does this give us, as ambassadors of the gospel, a license to offend people? Jesus places the rules of his kingdom above the social conventions of his day. He wants people to understand that. We should only offend people for the same reason, and then not if we can avoid doing so. We go on to read verses 15 to 24 of this chapter 14. When one of those at the table who heard this said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out into the roads and country lanes and make them come in 
so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The background to the implied question in verse 15 when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is a man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Uh, that's a question about who will be at the great feast in heaven. The background to that is interesting. Isaiah clearly thought Gentiles will be present in his prophecy of that event that we've already looked at. Jews of the time of Jesus could not accept that and suggested things such as that the angel of death would be present to destroy the Gentiles, forcing the believers to wade through the blood to reach the banquet. Jesus is being asked for his opinion. Question 6. People don't buy fields or houses without seeing them, oxen or motor cars without trying them out. What is Jesus suggesting by what he says? People make excuses for not doing what they know they ought to do. That is true here in our world. It is true even when the decision taken here in this world has implications in the age to come. Curiously, the third excuse, I just got married so I can't come, is much better than the others because that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. We read, Chapter 14, 25 to 35. Large crowds were gathering with Jesus, and turning to them he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Question 7. There are three conditions here for discipleship. First, renouncing family ties. Second, being prepared for suffering. And third, forsaking possessions. Which of these is the hardest? Which the easiest 
of these for you. Of course, the answer to that question is up to you. Even allowing for the fact that the hate that Jesus talks about is another example of exaggeration for effect. When he talks about hating his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, few are prepared to renounce family ties as completely as this suggests. Indeed, to do so seems to run counter to all other New Testament teaching. Question 8. When I was at university, a long time ago, the Gospel sermons on a Sunday evening were expected to include a section on counting the cost. It did not appear to lessen the number of converts. How does that compare with what you hear as the preaching of the good news? Again, that is something that only you can answer. That was a tremendously good thing to do, and it was fully in agreement with what Jesus taught in these verses. That has been the second successive long passage with many small episodes, stories and parables. Since you've got this far, well done. The next study includes the parable of the prodigal son, so it is rather easier to understand what that is all about. Look forward to it. Thanks, Roger. This series is on every Sunday, but as usual on Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, there is something new available every day to inspire your Christian life.